We're still in the Gospel of Matthew. We're in the Gospel of Matthew still. Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, Matthew 6, and we are taking the Lord's Prayer that the Lord gives here as a model prayer for His disciples. We're taking it one petition at a time. And today we're up to that petition that says, forgive us our debts. But since it is a prayer, let us recite it together. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, the modern notion of forgiveness has kind of come into our culture, something like this. Forget about it. No harm, no foul. Just let it go. Or there's this deep sense of vengeance. I have been offended. I have been wronged. My rights have been denied. My personhood has been violated. There's no way in the world I'm going to let this go. The biblical notion of forgiveness is really the straight arrow foundational view of that. There is a sense in which God lets it go. There's a sense in which God removes our sins as far as the east is from the west and remembers them against us no more. There's a real sense in which God takes our sins and buries them in the deepest sea and all of our offenses and our transgressions are there. It's wonderful to know we have the forgiveness of sins. But it comes at a cost And the cost is a sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. There is no removal of sin. Sin is something we've done that offends God. The word that's used in this particular passage is, in fact, debts. It's the word ophelia, which means, in some contexts, profit. and some contexts, it means debt. And... It's a commercial term, and it has to do with setting things even, righting a wrong, squaring an account, getting things back to the way they need to be. Something has been uh, unbalanced and mishandled, and it needs to be put back correctly. The word that's used for in in the Lord's Prayer over in the Sermon on the Plain that Jesus preached that we read about in Luke chapter 11 
is the word we're familiar with, the word hamartia, the word for sin, which means to miss the mark. And it has to do with that which is a target that needs to be hit, but you slightly miss it. And the target that needs to be hit is the royal, perfect law of God. You've heard me say many times in one of the staples of our teaching is that the law of God, the Ten Commandments and the moral code that God has given us in His Word flows out of God's nature. And two particular attributes of God are set forth in the law. One is God's holiness. His holy, other, complete separation from the creature. He has a holiness that is light that is unapproachable. And then the other is justice. The fact that God is just. He is righteous. In fact, He is the standard and the measure of all justice. God is able to handle justice in the sense that He will establish justice. And when justice is breached and justice is offended, the Lord will correct it and bring it back. The least little offense against God's holiness and against God's justice has to be rectified. It has to be squared away. It has to be somehow put back right. Otherwise, God's character is impugned and God's creation is injured. And God is the one that's established what is sin and what is not. And He set it forth. And in summary, sin is not only a disobedience to God's voice. It's not only a missing of the mark. It's not only a stepping out of bounds. It's not only an affront to God. And by, the, by these four or five things I've just given you, I've given definitions of the several Hebrew words and Greek words that are used for sin. But sin be, goes beyond that. Sin is a pollution. It's a filthiness. It is something that is unjust, unfair, unright, injurious. And sin must be dealt with. So today I want to speak just a moment or two on the cost, which is the ground of our forgiveness. And that is the sacrifice of Christ. God doesn't just let it go. Some people want God to do that. They want God to say, well, I'm a big God and your sins are small in my sight. And it's not that much of a disorder to the universe. And if I'm not a big enough God to overcome your sin, then I'm really not much God at all. And so they argue that God is such a big God that he can just disregard sin. Let it go. Forget about it. But in order for God to let it go, in order for God to forget about it, in order for God to regard that it is taken care of, He had to do something. He had to do something about it. There was a moral rectitude and an uprightness in God that will not let sin go unpunished. And so He does two things that's with regard to sin. The first thing God does is He tells us what is and what is not sin. That's the grace of God right there. To at least let us know the terms, 
the stipulation, the commandments, the prohibitions, the things that we are to do and we are not to do, so that we can walk in the light of His countenance. He shows us what we need to know. He shows us the path to walk in. He tells us what is right and what is wrong. He sets the standard and He shows the standard. That's law. And that is a grace of God. Law is gracious. God is wonderful to give us that. But then, God goes on in His covenant, in all of them, that He has made, in which He not only sets the stipulations, but He also sets the penalties, the curses, the consequences for disobedience to His law. And so that's where we have fallen as a human race, starting with our father Adam and each one born of Adam and Eve, coming forth by procreation, multiplying, filling the earth. Not only do we fill the earth with humanity and all that that is, and it, it reflects the image of God, but we fill the earth with evil because that's in our hearts and that's who we are. We are lawbreakers. What could God do? Well, He can tell us what the penalties are. He can fairly warn us. He can give us one preacher after another of the commandment. He can tell us what His penalties are. The Scripture pronounces the preliminary judgment upon us all, and that is that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And there's a stipulation in the law of God, and that is the soul that sins, it shall die. Every sin since Adam and Eve in the garden with the fruit is a capital crime. Death comes upon all, for all sinned in Adam and all sinned in themselves. Everybody I'm looking at this morning is a sinner. And all of you are looking at the greatest of the sinners. We have broken God's commandments. We've fallen short of His glory. So we've lost that part of the law already. The only thing that's waiting for us are the grand penalties. All the curses of the covenant. And they're listed in the Old Testament. Right alongside the blessings, all of them are listed. It's things like famine, thirst, derision, mocking. Finally, as the list goes along, it comes down to finally being cut off. It means being cut off from the land of the living. That means because you want to walk in darkness, and will not come to the light because you love darkness rather than evil, rather than light because your deeds are evil. God will bring that upon you and your fate, your expectation is simply outer darkness for all eternity. If you love the darkness, that's where God will put you. 
If you want to live in your sin and stay in your sin, if you want to relish and enjoy your sin, and there are pleasures of sin for a season. And then there's an awakening, and then there's a reckoning. At the end of time, God will bring all into judgment. And if the way of darkness has been your choice and been your life, and you've remained in your sin, you'll get out of darkness. The Bible says that we're condemned already. There's already a preliminary judgment that's been brought against us. We don't have to wait to be condemned. The condemnation due to our sin is resting on us right now. It's hard to imagine that we are a condemned person, but all of this is in light of the sight of God. We look around amongst ourselves and we think we're not too bad. In fact, most of us are better than most of the rest of them, aren't we? We really are. But this is not a comparative reckoning. This is an absolute reckoning before a righteous God. And so our sins just sort of bind us there. And because they are so filthy, they must be washed. They must be, yea, verily, purged. And because they are so vile and offensive, they must be removed. And because they have caused such violence to the law of God, they must be rectified and there must be some justification put upon the sinner in order to bring him back right. Because your sin is separated between you and your God, and your sin has hid his face from you, and he will not hear, said Isaiah the prophet. Because of that, there's a gap, there's a chasm between you and God. There's an alienation. And all of these maladies need a remedy. And the remedy is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If our sins are filthy, His blood is a purging, cleansing agent. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. If our sin separates us between God, then the death of Jesus Christ, the sacrifice that He makes, reconciles us, brings us together with God. If our sins are that which must be taken and completely out of view, the death of Christ is the remedy that is an atonement, a covering for our sin, which is, again, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Everything you could imagine that is the malady, the hurt, the harm of sin has been completely dealt with in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it was His giving of Himself. And He gave of Himself to do two things. He gave of Himself to come in our human form, in flesh, to be an actual person, an actual man, a human And in that humanity, to do the first thing, and that's to keep the law of God. That's called his active obedience. But I want you to tell you you it wasn't easy. The Bible said he learned obedience by the things he suffered. 
Jesus just didn't automatically obey the laws of God from his days and as a babe in Bethlehem all the way up to his days of being baptized in the Jordan River, which was 30 years. Jesus had human issues. He had childhood issues, infancy issues. He had adolescent issues. He had adult issues. He lived in a world of sin and temptation. His temptation even came so much that the tempter himself took it on himself personally to go after Christ with the great temptations of the wilderness. He suffered. He had to endure temptation. He had to learn the Word of God. He had to call upon the Spirit of God. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. The suffering of Christ didn't begin when they started whipping him or putting the, nail, the, the nails in his hand or the crown of thorns upon him. That's not when his suffering started. His suffering started when he came in your place to bear your sin and to live the obedient life you didn't live. Because that's the only kind of life God's going to accept. That's the only person that's going to get the blessing. is someone that keeps that perfect life. And that's what Jesus did. That's his active obedience, the theologians tell us. They say his passive obedience. By passive, we mean he was not completely passive in the sense that it was all done to him. But by, the, by large measure, it was except for the very last thing. And that is, they didn't take his life from him. He yielded it up. He cried with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit to God. But he didn't do that until he said, it is finished. What was finished? He had completely borne the sacrifice. He had borne all the stipulated punishments for sin. Famine, hunger, thirst, derision, mocking, alienation. My God, why hast thou forsaken me? And all of these things he hung on that cross, enduring in order to set everything back right. Your forgiveness of your sins did not come cheap. It required the Lord of glory to lay aside His divine splendor and come and live in your place that life which you had failed before the face of God. And in so doing, He's able to grant you that righteousness that comes, that blessing. And He bore all those curses, every one of them in Himself. So Jesus in His death, in His crucifixion, bore the curse... And it means he bore it away and he brought the blessing. And now your sins can be forgiven. Because here's what happened to your sin in that great transaction before the face of God. God laid your sin on him. God hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And he bore in his own body our sins on the tree, on the cross. And that's a transaction before God, and it's only between you and God. God gives you this salvation. And it's His reckoning that counts. It's His holiness that is vindicated. It is His justice that is restored. He now can be just and the justifier of those that come to Christ by faith. He can be righteous. He can be holy. And there's not one thing in His universe 
that is out of order, out of sync, filthy, polluted. There is sin has been taken care of. You know the story in the Old Testament, they had the Day of Atonement, the priest would work with two goats. One goat, they would lay the sins ceremonially upon the goat, and they would send the goat into the wilderness, send him away from the camp. That was expiation. That was removal of sin. But the other goat, they would slaughter and put the blood upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies to provide a blood covering for our sin. That was propitiation. God has done that. He has taken care of our sin in the body of Christ in His death on that cross so that we might say, and never again glibly, and never again lightly, Thy sins be forgiven thee.